1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why Midway USA offers super fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. From the nation's capital, this is the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast with your host, Rob Snow. Episode 294 is brought to you by Solo Stove. This episode takes us way up north, just below the Arctic Circle, via a Skype call to Florida. Ken Gangler captivates us with stories of northern pike, walleye, lake trout, and grayling. He calls that the Grand Slam, if you can get all four of them in one day. I'm a bit shocked by some of the facts and stories he's going to tell us about northern pike behavior. If you're interested in catching some of these finned monsters from the Great White North, be sure to visit ganglers.com and don't forget your sunscreen. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Solo Stove. Everyone is getting in on the Solo Stove action. My doctor has one. My mom's best friend in Greensboro picked one up. And my little cousin Jill got one for her family in Maryland. These stoves and accoutrements are simple ingenious outdoor products to help you create good moments that become lasting memories. Now is the time to purchase a solo stove. They're on sale. Be sure to use the link at robsnowwhite.com or any of my social medias to ensure I receive credit for your purchase. I'm a very small business owner and every bit helps. I'm hoping that today's high gusty winds in the 20 mile per hour range are going to blow down lots of branches for us to burn this weekend when it's supposed to snow. My plan is to have a bourbon cocktail in my hand on Sunday night, watching the snowflakes fall under the streetlights on Kristen Lane, standing in front of the fire pit. Again, we use the bonfire model. Now, let's go way up north, and let's go talk to Ken Gangler. In this episode, we have Ken Gangler. Ken, you want to introduce yourself and tell us where you're calling in from today? Sure. I'm uh, Ken Gangler. I'm the owner of Gangler's North Seal River Lodge, also known as Gangler's Flying Lodges. 
my home in the wintertime and during COVID is uh, Ocala, Florida, the north central Florida, uh, which is where I reside. All right. And is there a celebrity doppelganger you might have that people listening out there who have not met you might be able to uh, picture? Oh, gosh. Yeah. Wayne Gretzky, unfortunately. Wayne Gretzky. Matter of fact, I'll tell you a story. One time I had the owner of the St. Louis Blues out there about four years ago. And in the middle of a meal, he stopped and looked at me and he says, you know who you look just like? Who's that? I said, Wayne Gretzky. He says, that's right. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I've heard that before. Oh, my goodness. All right. So this is going to be sort of the, the big fish of the north episode. We really don't have much on northerns and anything really about lake trout. We're going to learn all about this from you. But how did you get into owning a lodge that far north in Canada? I grew up in Chicago. I'm from Chicago and moved down to Florida 27 years ago. But born and raised in Chicago. And as a tradition in Chicago, people gravitate to the North Woods. And they kind of start out in northern Wisconsin or Michigan and maybe a little bit of Minnesota. But then you start, you know, you start going for the Holy Grail. You start going further and further north. And we fish in northwestern Ontario. And then my dad and I gravitated into fishing northern Manitoba. And we did that up until I was in my early 20s, mid-20s and decided to, we were both making career changes. Uh, he was in sales for GE and I was actually a musician. And something we always loved, shared love, and the family kind of was at a transition. So we, we made the decision to actually go into the, the business and bought our first lodge, which was really wasn't much to speak of, in uh, Northern Saskatchewan on Reindeer Lake and built that up. And then five years later bought another lodge and operated those two very successfully. And then we're intrigued by an area in northern Manitoba. It's called the North Seal River System. And it's a, it's a vast area that has never been uh, properly developed. The other situation, it sits kind of just below where the tree line ends. So it's really in a unique area for a lot of, for topography and for fisheries. And there's a very, very thin uh, line of area that goes across northern Canada, really goes across eastern Alberta into all the way across Manitoba that has what we call the Canadian Grand Slam, which is big pike, northern pike, uh, lake trout, walleye, and arctic grayling. And it's, it, the band is maybe 100. It, it defers as you're going east to west, but you know it can be as little as uh, 100 miles wide or 150 miles wide. And, Within those areas, you can find those four species. And the North Seal, to us, was by far the best area for the four species. And, and had no roads, just totally remote, hadn't been developed. So we decided it was the last available area below the tree line and had all these special qualities. And we had seen people try and develop it over the years and fail. And you really needed a, a, a large investment to go in there and and do it starting with an airstrip. So anyhow, we sold the two lodges and pulled everything together and, and went up there and began opening this, this area, which is over 5 million acres. My goodness. How long does it take to get up there? Well, it all depends how you're getting there. It, it actually can be surprisingly easy. I, I've actually made it up there in one day from Florida all the way up, but from a, from a, 
a guest standpoint, what you need to do is you you would leave and head to Winnipeg, which is easy to get to. That's our that's our main hub pickup point. And you would overnight in Winnipeg. And then early the next morning, like 5 a.m., our charter flight leaves from Winnipeg. And it'll depart around 5.30 a.m. And usually by 8, 8.30, you're landing on our airstrip. And, you know, you're 640 air miles north of Winnipeg. So you're, you're just below where the tree line ends. You're in the middle of nowhere. So it's pretty cool. What is the night sky like? Well, in June, we don't have any sky. We don't have any darkness, I mean. So you're no, far no. enough up that you get the, you're close enough to the Arctic Circle that you get the long daylights? Well, we're about 250 miles south of the Arctic Circle. Uh, in the months of June, getting into the beginning of July, we'll have almost no darkness. If it gets dark, it'll get dark, a little dusky at one in the morning, and then start getting light again at three. And then it starts to, uh, I think by about 15 minutes a day, starts to slide down as we move forward. Maybe it's not quite 15 minutes a day. So usually by by the end of July, we're starting to get into some darkness. And by the beginning of August, we can actually see the northern lights late at night. It's amazing. So I've always had the best fishing in my life usually. is in low light conditions. Does that affect the fish up there? Do they feed more? Is that how they get so big because they can see longer? And uh, no, I really don't think that has anything to do with it. The, um, where we're at, in, in other areas, obviously, it has a lot to do with it. But up by us, the fish are, you know, they're not, they have no pressure. They have no, they're just, they have such a short season for feeding that they're just eating, gorging themselves. Now, don't get me wrong, we have slow times. And I think the biggest thing we have is, is fronts, and particularly if we get a, like if you get a high come in that kind of sits over us and it gets too hot and there's no wind, that'll drive the pike down. That'll raise the water temperatures and drive the, the trout down too. As long as we get changed every two or three days, generally the patterns, those fish will, you know, you'll see little tweaks in the system, but generally they're, they're pretty active all throughout the day. Can we break down the four species and kind of just discuss? Sure. Like if, if someone had an FAQ, for each one that you could break down, if you had a long elevator ride with somebody that said, tell me what the the northern pike are like up there, what would you tell them? You know, the difference in northern pike up by us compared to other places is up by us, this is the absolute prime habitat for northern pike where they are, them and the lake trout are kings. Now, they don't really share the same habitat too much. But northern pike up here, you know, I've talked to a lot of people who fish Alaska, and there are a couple of great areas in Alaska. But in general, for its size, in Alaska, pike is not prime, and it's not a, it's not its true, you know, it's not where it's it's the dominant species. Up by us, it's the dominant species. I mean, you can catch 100, 150 fish in a day that are averaging four to eight, nine pounds of fish in the teens. And then we get them, of course, up into the 20-pound class and then up into the, you know, you get the rarities then over in the 30-pound class. I mean, we've, we've caught fish up to uh, 53 inches, and we've seen them bigger than that up there. So there's some really, really big fish. And, you know, you can catch consistently really nice fish up there. So the pike fishing is, uh, and, and the other thing about the pike fishing is the setting. It's 
I love the flats fish, which is one of the reasons I live in Florida. And to me, it's the best flats fishing in the world because you'll go into these bays that have clear water. And, you know, the difference is that as, as we, you know, as we do shallow water fishing or, you know, saltwater fishing in the States or anywhere, you know, fish are spooky and you really got to be sharp and you really got to really got to be careful. Man, with us, you can pull into a bay. You don't shut the motor off. I can get the worst fly fishermen in the world and they can uh, go out there and they can literally tie that cast right around their head. And as long as that, that fly is in the water 10 feet away from the boat, there's a chance that pike's going to hit it because they're, they're just have no fear up by us. So you got lots of fish in this really uh, perfect setting for fly fishing, for any type of fishing. And they have no fear. They're not wary. You don't get one shot at them or you don't get you know, two false casts and, and spook them. I mean, they just, they're like, come on, bring it, put it down. Is there a specific fly that you could just throw one of and always be successful or is switching yeah. it up a little fun just to see what you can get them to eat? There's different you can do is what by far my favorite is called the bunny bug. You know, it's a big rat, it's a rabbit tail, nice chunk of rabbit tail, about six to eight inches long. I tie it with a layer of flashable crystal hair underneath, and then I'll run my tail, and then I'll, I'll wrap the head with bunny, too, although you can do a lot of different things with the head. And the thing about that is not only do you have a fly that they absolutely love, but you have a fly that's also durable, that you don't have to change after three fish. It'll, it could last you all day. Bottom line is it produces. They just... I think it. I think it has to be that leeches are are rare in our waters. They are there, but they're rare. So I think they're kind of like cotton candy. And I think when these fish see something that resembles a leech or a leech action, that they just smoke it. Any colors that that matter to them, or just is that that movement? I uh, undulating rabbit fur. Well, all black. All black's pretty cool. All black works very well. But I mean, I've tied I've tied all kinds of stuff. I've I've tied uh, red and yellow, red and white, chartreuse and yellow. I've tied a lot of, I, I do one with purples and uh, I use some really interesting uh, flashable material and tie what something that to me gives you the color hues of a grayling. Because we have very colorful grayling in our area. And grayling are another thing that's like cotton candy to both pike and lake trout. So those work, they're, they're not super discerning. I mean, they're not a, it's not a, it's not a battle like a steelhead or a, a bonefish or permit where you've really got to be right on the money. But at the same time, there's definitely different patterns we have that that are preferred. If somebody was proficient at fly angling and conventional angling, which would you suggest they pursue the pike with? Well, you're talking to a fly fisher. There we go. Is that a question? <laughs> uh, I shouldn't take that wrong because about 60% of my people are, are conventional. I, I fish conventional too. But, I mean, I'm, I'm a fly fisherman, and I, I just think, you know, pike pike on the fly, how can you top it? Yeah, are there people that just say, you know what, I want to give it a shot? Yeah, I mean, how can you top it? I mean, it's like – and the nice thing, what I love about what I love about it is I've seen so many beginning fly fishermen. I mean – I've done a lot of saltwater fly fishing. Man, I've paid my dues, you know, and I've pulled hooks out of my ear and, you know, just, you know, saltwater fly fishing can be 
can be a brutal experience. But up by us, with the pike being so forgiving, you know, you're going to catch fish. They're going to have fun, and they're going to learn. And they're going to, they're going to, as they fall in love with the casting and the technique and become better at it. You know, you're catching fish at the same time, so, so the people are going to be into it. Where, hey, if I take somebody on their first fly fishing trip and I take them bone fishing or tarpon or uh, tarpon fishing or whatever, you know, I'd say the odds are better than 50-50, they might just say, screw this. Is there something we'd be really surprised to learn about pike for someone myself who's never actually really had a chance to target them? And I've yeah. seen the I've seen the takes on YouTube. I've seen them eat crazy looking flies, videos and them cut open with ducks inside of them. Yeah. What's yeah. something that would just blow listeners pike. away? Pike will go into a bay and they will bury themselves in the mud. What? I've seen it where, you know, till the first time I saw it, I, I couldn't believe it. But a lot of times you'll, you'll go into, I'll go into a bay and I'll look for two things. Like sometimes you go into a bay that <clears throat> you know is prime habitat. You can smell the fish, but you're not seeing them. So I'll look around for two things. First around, I'll look, I'll look around for, you know, pike fecal matter or whatever you want to call it. Uh, which usually looks like um, something a seagull would leave behind, except silver. On little scales. Find, yeah, and you, so you'll find uh, you'll find piles of this, you know, like big blotch of this on the floor of a bay, and it's silvery, and by the size of it, you can tell that it's produced by a big fish. The other thing is that they will actually get in and at times and bury themselves in the mud. Uh, pretty bizarre, and, and unless you saw it with your own eyes you wouldn't believe it, but they'll actually get in there and like lay down and somehow cover themselves in mud. I don't know if it's an ambush, ambush technique or what, what it is, but I've seen it with my own eyes and it's, and they do it. They do it. That's one of the craziest things I've heard in a while. My gosh. Knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Have you seen them ever throw up something that you were just like, you know what, I had no idea they'd eat that? Um, well... First off, one time I was I was doing a little guiding and I uh, I made a uh, making shore lunch for someone cleaning a pike and it wasn't even that big of a pike and it had a, a whiskey jack in it which is a lot of people know as a Canadian jay you know a, a bird that's really native to Canada but not really one you'd find around the water right no no not at all and so I mean I op- I cut the fish open myself and saw this and it's like oh my god you know like how did how did this bird get itself in a situation where this pike grabbed yeah i saw that the other thing um i've seen pike are so uh so aggressive i've seen a couple of dead pike floating on the surface where they have tried to eat fish that were almost as big as them one time it was uh i would guesstimate it about a 15 pound pike and he had a 10 pound lake trout in his mouth oh my gosh and he had choked to death, and he was floating at the top. 
And the other time I saw a big pike, and it had a, a, a sucker about eight pounds. And the same thing. He had choked to death on it and was floating dead at the top of the surface. So, I mean, they'll, they'll try and eat some crazy stuff. What about those teeth that I always hear about? You, know, you hear about them cutting up people? Do people make the mistake the first time and get too close? Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, they do. Uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's 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 a big... They're not a bass, that's for sure. You, you want to get... You want to get gifted. I mean, stick your finger near a pike's mouth. The other thing you really got to watch for the pike, particularly when you pick them up, is their gills. Um, you know, you always have to be careful you don't hurt a fish when you pick it up by the gills. But if you if you grab a pike the right wrong way, it can get you two ways. It can slice you if you if you grab a certain area of the gill. There's a you know a certain part you can grab and a certain part you can't. It'll slice you good if you don't grab it right. And the other thing is that somehow. You know, the way pike will thrash around, if you pick one up and all of a sudden your hand slides up a little too far, you get caught in the rakers, kind of like the teeth that are inside inside the mouth towards the gills. And, man, that's that's bad. And on top of it, pike, I guess because of the slime they have or whatever, I mean, you, your hands can get very infected. So if you're, if you're doing a lot of fishing for pike and take you know up by us you'll end up taking a lot of pike off the hook you know your hands can get beat up really quickly and then get infected and very painful because of the type of slime i guess they have so one of the things i like to i like to do is uh you know after every night after you've been been out pike fishing go home and wash your hands really good and then just coat them in neosporin um it'll, it'll save your save yourself the next day I imagine it's not too close to the nearest place where you can get stitched up or take an x-ray. Uh, 153 months. Yeah. All right, listeners, take note of that. Don't let your hands get ruined. All right, yeah. tell us about the walleye fishing up there. What's a – and this is also – you're doing all catch and release, correct? Yeah, we'll eat, we'll eat some fish for shore lunch, but everything else goes back. Everything else goes back. The walleye fishing is amazingly phenomenal. The walleye, we're on the northernmost edge of walleye. There's no walleye north of us. And yet, you would think that, you know, they would peter out in numbers and size, but they don't. We've got huge walleye up by us and lots of them. The record that we had for, for walleye for guys fishing a boat, it was multi-species, but the bulk of it was walleye. Was two people in a boat, and you know, like nine hours, over 400 fish, and the size on them, they average 20 to 20, 20 to 24 inches and, and better, and we've caught them up to 34 inches. I mean, there's some; these are big. They're beautiful. They're big, fat-bodied walleye, chunky, with golden sides and just black backs. I mean, they're just. I just love fishing for them. How old do you would estimate a fish that size would be, up to 36? inches how much would he weigh how old do you think that fish is with their their slow yeah. life cycle i don't know on walleye and i do know that walleye grow quicker than pike uh, a pike is an example of 40 like say a 40 41 inch pike is going to be 20 years old and lake trout grow even slower than pike interesting what's on the the diet of a walleye for matching the hatch pardon me what are you going to throw to the walleye? What's their food preference up there? 
Well, I, uh, I'm going to name drop here. You don't mind if I name drop Dave. Do it, please. Uh, we, we were blessed that Lefty Crayfish with us for many years, many, many times. And I got to actually go with him one time. And he, he came into camp and he goes, Ken, he goes, you know what? I want to do this trip. And he said, what's that, Lefty? And he said, I want to catch a walleye and a clouser minnow. And, I, of course, I kind of looked at him like he was nuts because everybody wants to chase big pike. And, and he said, it'll be the 87th species I've caught on a clouser minnow. So I said, okay. So luckily I got to go with him that day. And we, we got into a lake, uh, one of our lakes that has a, a narrow where there's good current going through it. And I used a floating fly line with a, uh, just a little bunny on it, just a very dressed down, maybe three, four inches. And with a floating fly line, I would just count it down. And then I would feel the walleye take it once it hit a certain point and then just let him mouth it for a bit and then set the hook. And, you know, Lefty and his partner were using uh, clousers and just cleaning up on clousers. And I mean, in an hour and a half, we caught 80 walleye up to eight pounds. Um, could have sat on them all day if we wanted it. But with walleye, you would be, you know, anything that's somewhat jig-like will work. Jigs are a big bait up by us. So anything like a clouser, of course. But like I said, the bunnies just, just simply getting into an area like the walleye are normally you know there's a lot of situations well there's some areas where we get into them where if it's the right time of the season you can visually fish walleye but other one other times will be current areas where the you know water depth will be maybe six seven feet down to 12. and you said these are not going to be all all the four species they, they do not occupy the same habitat at the same time well at times they do uh, particularly after ice out when the water temperatures are cold. At that time, walleye will move into the bays. Pike will move into the bays. Or pike are always in the bays. That's got to make the pike happy when the walleyes move in there. Yeah, uh, yeah. And then the lake trout, lake trout will move into the bays. So you get out there in June, you could be casting in a bay, and you don't know quite what you're going to come up with. I'll tell you another story about walleye. One thing I saw, and if I hadn't seen it with my own eyes, I wouldn't have believed it, but I was fishing one of our lakes one time in crystal clear water. And we had been jigging walleye in like kind of a long, shallow area. The depths didn't drop, weren't sudden. And jigging for walleye, and, and you know, after a while, I mean, we had a great time, and I like I liked to kind of look around. So I took, took the boat with my son, and Water was crystal clear and the sun was high. And so I was scouting this lake and I came over this one edge and I saw, you know, this was, uh, I think, later in July. By then the cabbage weed had come up to where you could see the cabbage weed at the top of the surface. So I, I, I noticed some, ba some beds, cabbage beds. So I went over to them and I was, so I could see, I was literally standing on top of the, the bench seat of the boat with my foot on the tiller, just going real slow and walking, looking. And I looked, and this water was crystal clear, and I would say this cabbage was coming up in eight feet of water. You know, and they, the strands were spread far enough apart where you could see pretty well. And I looked, and I saw, I started seeing pike, like these good-sized pike suspended halfway up the cabbage and just kind of sitting there, you know, which you kind of expect a pike to do for ambush. And then as we got a little closer, I looked, and they weren't pike. They were big walleye. And they were just doing exactly what a pike would do, but they were sitting 
halfway up, holding to the cabbage weed, and just, I guess, is sitting there to ambush. Never heard of that before. No, I had, if I, no, that's another one. If I hadn't seen it with my own eyes, yeah. I, I don't know if I would have believed it. Crazy. All right, let's go to uh, the Lakers. Tell us about those and, and the fishery and just <clears throat> how big they get. They're awesome, man. We get Lakers up to 50 pounds. That's the size of my kid, if not bigger. Yeah. It's uh it's uh it's a great fishery for lake trout. The interesting thing is you get into a lot of Canadian lakes and lake trout can be down 120 feet, 140 feet, but the North Seal, in most places, the holes that hold them are only about fifty to eighty feet. And I'd had some friends up from being fishermen up. Uh, Jimmy Linder was up filming with us and you know, they're great. They're very scientific. And we, you know, despite the North Seal not having as much deep water as some other lakes I've been on, it's got a ton of lake trout, nice lake trout. And we were trying to figure it out. And, and what we came up with is the water's got a slightly tannic stain to it. And you got, you know, of course, a ton of water flow. And we, we figured the combination of the two was keeping the water cold enough to where it was a great lake trout habitat. So, so we get, you know, big schools of lake trout where, I mean, we'll get them, you know, four to eight pounds, but then lots in the teens, but then you get them in the 20 pound class, the 30 pound class and then bigger. And I mean, there's some really, really big fish up there. How'd you get down to the deeper ones? Well, the deeper ones, I mean, if you're fly fishing, you're going to have to get into sinking lines and counting down. And, you know, I mean, you're essentially, you know, you're fishing, you're fishing way down in the water count. You know, at that time of the year, most of us have just switched to a regular rod. But if you want to do it, and we've had, you know, a number of guys, Lefty and uh, Dan Blatton fished with me. Dan fished a number of times with us. And Dan's really well known for fishing stripers on the West Coast. And, you know, he did a lot of work with tarpon down in Costa Rica where he was using his um, different sinking lines and, and he would actually match back then he was matching them up. I think that was before they were really kind of making the specialized sinking lines they have now, but he was mixing and matching them and coming up with these, these lines that would just shoot right down. So he used those quite a bit on the Lake Trout up West. And they were, you know, by that time they've seen a lot of stuff. So they're, they're having as much fun experimenting and seeing what works. So they, that's what they were doing. And they were catching a lot of Lake Trout and having a lot of fun. Are you going to be using bunny fur again for these fish? You can use bunnies, but really for lake trout, what seems to work better is more of a big, more of a fly with a, a bigger um, bait fish pattern, you know, profile. Like uh, uh, Dan's got a lot of whistler, you know, with a whistler, the sardo mac, you know, um, kind of a sardine type fly. But anything, you know, deceiver, lefty deceiver is a great fly. And I'm not, just name and know to uh, because of the because uh, of knowing those guys, but uh, you know anything with kind of a big bait fish pattern that to me cuts a nice profile is going to attract lake trout. Anything that a lake trout has done that has blown your mind in all the years that you've been up there? That one story you're going to tell at the bar at night? Ah, uh, you know. There probably is. I mean, you always catch lake trout with a tail hanging out of their mouth. Um, we see that all the time. I mean, they'll, you know, for a big lake trout will, will eat a, 
you know, a five-pound lake trout or whitefish like nothing. I think the coolest tale I ever heard was eating big fish with the tails hanging out, and they're still hitting your, your fly or spoon. But it, probably the biggest lake trout I ever heard of that we, we had caught, and I had a, a guest who had fished with us many years with an with a experienced guide, and it was in the fall, and they hooked this lake trout. And this guest was very experienced, and not a, he wasn't one to BS. And anyhow, they, they hooked this huge lake trout, and they got it in. And like I said, he was a very experienced northern fisherman. And they got this thing in, and we use cradles, which is a, a netting device that is very careful on the fish. And it's almost like a... I don't know what you call it, like a saddle, but it's got two long wood slats that like are a netting. big hammock almost with with poles on the side. Yeah. Now these these cradles are generally about forty eight to fifty inches long, so we can fit most anything in it. Well, this lake trout came up and it was so big. This thing was so big that it hung over six inches over either side of the cradle, and the guest told me he said the eyeball looked like a pipe plate. He says he had, this guy has fished salmon. He's done. He's been all over the world. He says he had, in his life he'd never seen anything like it. He says the eyeball literally looked like a pipe plate staring up at him. Bottom line is the fish was so big and so heavy, and you know it was fall weather. They were fishing in the fall, and not not great weather. Uh, they they couldn't get it in the boat. Not that they not that you really want to bring a fish that big in the boat, but they just couldn't get it in the boat. They finally just released it. That's a big fish. Do you ever hear yeah. stories? About now, there's always that the the urban legends about you know a huge catfish down there. Are there urban legends about stuff that might be in the lakes that would eat something that big? Uh, I no, I, I haven't heard of that in our area. I haven't heard of any uh, Loch Ness monsters or anything like that. Just of ignore, like generally, it's in a, a like a hugely large pike. As an example, one of our lakes. Um, we got a, a pike that's been hooked a few times, and that pike had been, and it was another pike that they had tried to cradle it, and it hung over either side of the cradle, and they couldn't get it in the boat. So, you know, we're, we're probably talking a 60-inch pike, which is, I don't even know how big that would be. It's it got to be 45, 50 pounds. It's a record. But we, we've, we've definitely had a number of those where people have hooked them and lost them beside the boat and they just you know, there's not much you can do with a fish that big yeah have you ever seen remnants of something huge that's just washed up somewhere oh yeah 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 definitely yeah all right let's talk about some grayling now my first encounter and only encounter of them was in the Cotswolds in england and they were about six inches long and i was just looking at them i didn't get a fish for them How's the fishing for grayling up there for someone who's never experienced grayling on the fly? Awesome. It's awesome. In fact, that's how I learned how to fly fish was on grayling. Originally. Yeah, it's funny. I was, uh, when I had another lodge, we did a fly-in for one day, and I took some guests in, and I didn't fly fish. Matter of fact, I was, believe it or not, I was anti-fly fishing at the time, and so I got in there with this group of fly fishermen and took them over this great stretch of river, and of course, the plane left. And I'm about an hour into our fishing, and my ultralight breaks. And I, you know, I 
course, had not brought a spare. The only thing that was there to use was fly rods. <clears throat> so I ended up having to learn how to fly fish if I didn't want to be watching from the bank the rest of the day, and I fell in love with it. But the grayling fly fishing, the grayling fishing up, we are in prime grayling habitat. Uh, it's, you know, a lot of fish that are uh, 12 to 16 inches. Anything 18 inches or bigger is considered a trophy. They're very fat grayling. I, I mean, I've caught grayling in different parts of Canada. These grayling are very, very fat. I mean, they're like, they got to be uh, almost two inches wide. They're feeding so heavy. The largest grayling that we've ever hooked and landed was 24 inches. Uh, I mean, these are some big, big fish. And how these, how big is the sail on that one? Oh, gosh. Huh. That sail would have to be, oh, they have to be up close, close to eight inches high. Wow. Yeah, huge fish. Huge fish. And are you going to preference dry flies on them or are you going to use oh, yeah. small jigs? Uh, dry, dry flies. I mean, you know, everybody, of course, wants to fish them on dry flies, but grayling or grayling cycle, like with the hatches, you know, they they follow the hatches. A couple of things influence grayling when you got them in a river. Is, you know, you know, as the as the hatch is coming up, of course, they're feeding at the surface, and then what will happen is if you know the hatch will, after an hour, it'll die off. Will the grayling die off? So then, then you switch to a, a nymph, uh, some sort of nymph. And start fishing down below because what they'll do is they'll get they'll bury themselves and there's usually when you have these grayling areas they're, they're all big boulders you know with a lot of river flow going over them so they'll bury themselves actually in the boulders at least in our area and so then you got to get over them with a nymph get down to them and we'll actually catch some of our bigger grayling doing that you know with a nymph and an indicator uh, and then an hour later a cycle will start up again you switch back to dry flies. Have you ever had a northern pike try to eat a grayling on the end of your line? Oh, yeah, lots. Lots of times. Lots of times. Matter of fact, one time I uh, I, I landed a grayling, and a pike had tried to grab it. And we ended up, I ended up shooing the pike away. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. And when I released the grayling, the water was clear so I could see everything. And in these boulders, you know, the, the rocks weren't packed tight, so there were spaces between them. And I watched that grayling actually dive down into that little safe area where the pike couldn't get them and just sit there until he could recoup which I thought was, was really neat to see him do that. 
Another time, actually in the same stretch of water, there was um, a side eddy. You'd come off the main chute of the river, which would drop down about oh, eight feet, I guess, you know, gradually. And off to the side was a like a holding eddy where you could actually kind of kind of pull your boat off to the side and actually do cat do fly casting from there and without getting out of the uh, boat. And one time I was with my wife and, and we pulled off around that side and looked down and there was this gigantic 46 inch pipe. And he was just sitting just off the edge of that, that current, uh, that hard current, just off to the side and just laying there. And you know, you know what he was waiting for. But I, I, I often get guests and they'll say, yeah, we, we went up to the Grayling River today. And I said, well, how was it? Well, it was kind of slow. You know, we were there the other day. It was really good. It was kind of slow. And uh, first thing I'll say to them, well, did you catch any pike? Yeah, we caught a couple pike. Well, so that's why you didn't catch any Grayling. Right. They're laying low. You mentioned that you get the walleye on the northern end of their distribution. Are you on the southern end of anything that would swim down? Anything that would shock you that lives north of you? Well, I would say that we're we're not at the very south part of Good Lake Trout Water, but getting close, getting close to it, and then uh, and then definitely Grayling. We're definitely at the at the you know Grayling. True Grayling fishing would only go another sixty to eighty miles south of us, and that's it. Has the climate changed up there in the last, I don't know, how many years since you've been regularly going that you're seeing different species where they used to not be found and some others are no longer around? The only comment I would make to that, I would, well, I would make two comments to it. Um, the only comment, uh, walleye, we're, we're definitely seeing a lot of growth in the walleye population. Now, I don't know. I don't know if that's something other than climate change. I've talked to biologists about it. I, I, I honestly couldn't tell you if it's tied to climate change, but it's something we've we're, we've definitely seen in the last 20 years. And then the other thing is um, we have a caribou herd that migrates into our area in the fall and the winter time, and the migration has definitely is definitely they still come down, but it's uh, the movement of it is delayed. It's 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 probably come. They're probably coming down a, a month later than we're used to seeing. So that's something I'm not sure if that's tied into it or not, because I know uh, caribou like to eat grass. You know, depending on the how the grass is up in the tundra and all that stuff, and how how it's supporting them. I, I think that might have a lot to do with it. I can't honestly say from a weather standpoint we've seen any changes at all. I mean, last summer was a very cold summer and very cold up there and a late ice up, a very late ice up. So I don't, I can't say that I have seen any weather changes because of climate change. And just these two things I've mentioned, which I don't know how they tie in either. And of the four species from the Grand Slam, are there other species that clients want to target other well, things we, that would be bycatch up there besides you mentioned the the lenick well we have we have very big uh whitefish got some monster whitefish up by us and some people want to get into whitefish um but they're really hard to figure out um 
I had uh, uh, Al Linder fish with us one time, and and you know Al Linder, you can't find a better angler than Al Linder. I grew up watching him. His accent always just caught me off guard, though. That's because he's from Chicago. <laughs> he's from Belmont and Central. That's a Chicago accent that you hear that. Anyhow, uh, and I used to tease Al about it all the time. Anyway, L, L came up one time, and you know they like, you know they're always looking for new methods and different different things, and they figured they had figured out how to target whitefish, and they came up and and they had all these different methods they were going to do, and they went out there and they tried them, and you know they just it just didn't work, and it's, you know if they can't figure that out, I don't know if anyone can figure it out. There, it's just we catch kind of catch them by accident. It's crazy, but and there's big ones there. I mean we catch. We catch whitefish up to eight, eight, nine, ten pounds. Um, so, you know, they're big enough to eat a lure or eat, or eat something. But when we catch them, it's always some sort of a fluke. What about non-fish animals up there? Is there anything you have to look out for that might try to get you? Well, you always got to be a little bit careful about bears, black bears. I mean, normally they're not an issue, but uh, they can surprise you. At times we do have the the odd barren lands grizzly up by us we rarely see them but we see them enough to know they're there so that's definitely a an, a beastie you don't want to mess with that's a nasty beastie uh wolves you know we have a lot of wolves up by us and wolves are very intelligent it's always something you really have to respect you know up, up where we're at it's not uh we do we do a lot of eco trips too and we do try and build some of the eco into fishing if, if people want it you know wolves are they're, they're smart smart animals so i wouldn't want to be alone too far no, too it, far from other people if the wolves start burying themselves in the mud that's when we have to worry yeah that's right <laughs> smart animal boy they're really smart how big is a wolf? I've seen pictures compared to a dog. I haven't seen them at the zoo before, but that's a pretty big animal from. I saw a wolf one time. This is the biggest wolf I've ever seen. And there's a lot smaller, of course. But I saw a wolf one time. I was in actually in our, our otter float plane taking off. I was in the right seat. On our runway, we have a oh a little a little shed that's built kind of a lean-to somewhat where we put luggage and all that in when the guests are going back and forth and we took off and as we looked over this wolf was on the runway standing next to the luggage shack and the luggage shack i would say the very top of that luggage shack will come up to it's over five feet definitely over five feet and I would say this wolf, this wolf at his back, the top of his back was four feet high. I mean, this animal was scary. Absolutely scary. Yikes. I had a caretaker stay up there. And the guy who stayed up, stayed up there was a pretty, uh, you know, he'd been around. He served with the Canadian Armed Forces and he had done time in Lebanon with the peacekeepers. I mean, he'd been around the block. So he went up there to caretake for a couple months one year. And, and he was he was a native fellow, uh, First Nations fellow. So he's used to being around wildlife and, you know, it didn't, didn't rankle him at all. But he was, he was unnerved because he'd go out for a walk in the snow and come back. And this was, 
I believe like April, getting at the beginning of May. And he'd go out for a walk and he'd come back and then he'd notice that there was a wolf following him because the wolf was walking over his tracks. Like the tracks weren't there when he left, but when he came back, there were these wolf tracks. So this wolf was following him. Yeah, I'm not comfortable with that. I was talking to a friend today who had a you know deal with tigers in the Himalayas and Oof. another animal that will follow people, and I'm just not okay with that. Yeah, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to be around tigers. No. So, I like them too. Tell us about the lodge. Do what goes on when everyone's done for the day? What's the atmosphere like? Well, we, it's it's cool. We do uh, do a lot of different things. It really depends the way we run our lodge. It's uh, it's five star, but it's very relaxed. Yeah, everyone has something. You know, we hold twenty six people, so the lodge the lodge is for relaxing and for dining, and then we have individual cabins that the guests stay in. So it gives guests the ability to they can hang out in their cabins, which are very comfortable, or they can come into the lodge. We have a bar in the lodge too, and you know the lodge is beautiful. It's a beautiful facility, uh, big, and it overlooks the lake. They come in, they have cocktails, they relax. We have a fly tying table there. You know, like if, particularly when we run some of our fly fishing clinics, you know, we would, I mean, I've had Lefty up there a number of times, Flip, uh, you know, um, Bob Clauser, a bunch of different guys. And I always tried to make it kind of like a, a group thing. You know, it was so great to, so many of us when we go to these fly shows, you know, you're in a group of people and, you know, if you get to ask a question, you know, you ask one question and you're in a group and then, you know, it's it's just, it, it's good. I mean, don't get me wrong, but it's not the same. Well, up there, it was so cool because we could all hang together and, and you know, just relaxing with a glass of wine in your hand and, you know, asking Lefty or one of the guys questions and, you know, just, you know, you're getting like incredible advice yet it's in such a relaxed setting and where you can get into more detail. And then, you know, I can't tell you how many times I've seen them take them over somebody over a fly tying table and show them how to tie something, whether it's a knot or a, a fly, or take them down to the dock and work, help them with their casting. Just a really neat, uh, a really neat ambiance. And, and uh, that's what we, that's what we try and have a lot to do. I do a lot of that too. I mean, I, my skills are not comparable to those guys, but you know, I tie flies for people or show them stuff and I'll take them down, show, you know, help them with their fly casting. And, you know, we really want people to have a great experience and have a lot of fun, but at the same time, you know, Hey, if you can learn stuff and, and get into it even more, that that's a great thing. And whenever you share the religion of fly fishing, I think it's awesome. Absolutely. Are there any people that go up there and just don't fish that hang out at the lodge all day? Well, we've in the last couple of years we've developed an eco trip, and the eco trips a little bit more for later in the year. A lot of it has to to center around Northern Lights, although you really don't need that to to enjoy the area. Yeah, we've got, we've probably got about two hundred and fifty people a year to do that, and you know it's it's such a cool like the area that we're in geographically is really unique and really cool. It's just not Canadian bush. It's got sand duskers and it's just got these, it's just really unique. Uh, the topography is really neat and unique. So what we've done is we've created um, an experience for people to experience the area. 
and learn about the area. And, you know, if they want to fish too, they can fish. I've got some guys coming up this year. They're going to one of my other camps, and they're birders. Um, they've gotten into birding, but they're fishermen too. So they're doing like a half birding, half fishing trip, which is, and we happen to have some unique species up by us of birds. So they're going to be doing that. So I think, so it's just a lot of, we, we really like to have a lot of different things for people to do. And we see a lot of, uh, I guess how this all really started was, you know, we'd get couples that want to go on trips together and stuff like that. And the wife just wouldn't be as much of a diehard fisherman as, as the husband. And, you know, the wife would say, I'll sit in the lodge and I'll read a book or sit in my cabin and read a book. And I mean, I just, you know. You could I do just, that at home. Yeah, exactly. There's just so much more to do. So what we did was we, we started, as we noticed that we had all this these other experiences to offer, we started rolling it together and offering it. And the idea was that if a family wants to come up um, and do different experiences, they can do that. You know, one of the things we, we offer is uh, we're, we're about 180 miles away from Churchill, Manitoba, which is where you see the polar bears and beluga whales on TV. And actually, the, the, the uh, president of uh, Temple Fork. Um, Rick. Uh, no, not Rick. Um, Rick's been with me many times. He's a dear friend. But um, he's kind of the, the principal on Temple Fork, um, other than Rick. He's kind of the behind-the-scenes guy. Okay. He and his wife came up and brought their family, and they ended up uh, doing a fishing trip with us. And then they ended up going over to Churchill for four days and doing a split trip, and they got to do that experience. So actually, Bob Clauser did that too with a friend of his. So we, we really try and uh, offer a lot of different experiences for people, and you know everyone's different, so. You can't really make them cookie cutter. You got to kind of find out what people want. We have frameworks of them on our website, but then we just work with them to see, you know, what are they really looking for? Do you have a store up there for people that lose things, break things, didn't come prepared? I have a, I have a store up there, and then I'm also I work with I work with a number of the top companies. I'm the Orvis Endorse Lodge. I have Orvis up Orvis equipment up there. I've worked with Temple Fork for many years. I have their equipment up there, and I work with. I now work with Sage, so I'll have some Sage equipment up there. So we, our our conventional tackle is pretty much Temple Fork, and then TFO, and then our um, our our fly stuff. We mix it up between the three companies. And you know, the other thing I really like about that, I mean, and I'm at the end of the day, you know, I'm I'm a I'm a, I'm a fisherman and I go to the fly shows and, you know, I do the fly shows, but at the same time, I, uh, you know, I'm enjoying them too. And, you know, like usually when it closes down late in the day or early in the day, I'll go out there and cast the rods when there's nobody around. But I like it when people come up and, you know, I'll give you an example. One time I had a guest up and, and kind of a new fly fisherman, but he, he was very curious. So, you know, let him use a, a, Orvis clear water one day. The next day I said, well, why don't you try this? Just be careful with it. And it was an H3. So he checked on H3. And then the next day I said, now check this one out. And I gave him the TFO, the BBK rod. And But he actually got to use each of the rods for a whole day, you know, out actually fishing and catching fish and get a feel for what, what, he, what he liked. And I'm sure he liked all of them, but 
you know, get a feel for what you really like. And I, I think the ability to do that is just really cool. Especially on those fish. Yeah, especially on those fish. Yeah. Is there a common thing that people forget to bring with them? Sunscreen. You know, they'd be shocked at how intense the sun is up by us, and it can also get warm. But sunscreen, yeah, they, they forget to bring sunscreen, and you know, whenever you're around the water, sun will get you. So you need to bring that. What type of polarized glasses do you wear? Oh, what do I have? I've got Costas. Nice. And how important is a reel for all of these fish? Which one of them do you need to have that solid drag system for? You know, pike, a big pike, a big pike will definitely can take you into the back for sure. But they're not, it's not like a, you can get away with a, a, a little bit lighter reel than, you know, than a bonefish or a permit. I mean, you're not going to, I mean, we work with um, T-Bore started working with T-Bor, which I personally own. I love T-Bors. TFO's got some cool, cool reels. Orvis, of course, Orvis Mirage, I've got some of those. They're all great. They're all sufficient. We can use the Hydrus, you know, that's a good reel. So you don't need to, you know, I think if, if someone's kind of watching their pennies there and and trying to figure out what they're going to put together for tackle, you can, you can scrimp a little bit on the reel. I mean, you know, have a large arbor reel though. Definitely have a large, large arbor. But scrimp a little bit on that to put the money in the rod. You know, because the rod's what you're going to be feeling. What do you think? Anything that I forgot to ask or I haven't asked yet that you want to talk about? How easy is it to get there? We well, fly to Winnipeg and then another flight. Yeah, well, I forgot to mention uh, what we do is we have our own airstrip. So we what we've done is we we. You know, the way to get there, what we've had to do is, you know, that's that's one of the biggest nightmares going. We've made it surprisingly easy in that we've carved out a runway that's 5,400 feet long out of the bush. And this runway is 150 foot wide by 5,400 feet long. And and it's it's tested every year and it's, it's certified and it's capable of landing. I could land a 737 on it if I wanted. We use a lot of, uh, we use ATRs and Dash 3s, or Dash 8, excuse me, out of Winnipeg. And, you know, you, you leave Winnipeg and two two to two and a half hours later, you're landing on a runway and walk to your cabin. When you go to an outpost camp, you walk 200 feet and hop on the float plane to take in your outpost camp. It's just, uh, you know, it's, it's unreal. Convenience. Have you ever had somebody fly their own plane there? I have. I have. Uh, yeah, we've had a few of those, and uh, that's not a problem. Uh, you can't bring a jet in because of the gravel. Uh, they're gravel runways. But, you know, anyone with a piston plane, King Air, Navajo, uh, Piper, any of those can come in. No problem. Have you ever had a really bizarre request? <laughs> None that I can share with the public. Yeah. <laughs> My goodness. <laughs> Are you enjoying your, your winter of no travels to the shows? No. You get a little bit of fish more. Those are always fun events when you've been stuck inside. We used to think oh. that was called being stuck inside. Well, actually, I had COVID in December. Oh, um, no. I had a mild case, but you know it eats up your time. 
But then my wife got it January 2nd, and she got a pretty nasty case. And she's actually getting over it with pneumonia. So we've been kind of... My goodness. So I mean, well, of course, I, if, if there was no COVID, I would be at the shows anyhow. Yeah, so we've been dealing with that. But, you know, yeah, I love the shows. I mean, I, I don't do as many as I used to. So, that's, so it makes them a lot more fun. And I do the different fly fishing shows. I do the Edison show. Uh, do a number of them, and I enjoy them. I, I, I like them a lot. Um, but, you know, this year we're, gosh, the only one that's still on, I mean, they've all been canceled except for the Texas Life Fishing Festival. Still going on. Yeah, you know, I see it advertised every day. Yeah, that's going to be in the uh, end of February, so we're keeping our fingers crossed. But other than that, they're all, they're all toast. So it's like, I love them. I, I love going to the shows. I love, First of all, I love talking to people and meet people and showing them what we have. And, you know, I've always thought that I know when I went to a lodge as a kid, I mean, lodges are about atmosphere. It's not just the nuts and bolts, but, you know, particularly for an atmosphere. And that's why we have such a devoted following of clientele. And, you know, you just, you, you set the atmosphere of your lodge and you take care of people and you care. And it's like, like what we do with what our, with the fishing equipment and all that. And, fishing programs and, you know, or even the eco people are looking for special experiences and, and that, that's what we do. And when you go to the show, you get to meet people, find out what they like. And the other thing is you get to go out there and see what other competitors are doing. It might be people down in South America end up learning something from, you know, some new ideas. Uh, I look at new materials, particularly fly tying materials. Always. Uh, I, I love the shows. I really do. And you mentioned about an hour ago that you were a musician at one point. What instrument did you play? Oh, bass guitar. All right. Yeah, I played with a, I started out with heavy metal bands in Chicago, and then I played with a bunch of new wave bands. And then uh, still got a friend of mine, a guy I grew up with. He's still a recording engineer, recording producer out of, he's in L.A. now. And he, he played, he's done some really big stuff. But yeah, I gave that up to go into this business. So, you know, I mean, I, I miss music and I still got a bunch of bass guitars hanging behind me right now. But, you know, I uh, and I do keep a bunch of instruments up at the lodge uh, for people who want to get up there and jam. But I, I, I was I'm pretty fortunate in the way that while I miss music, I my other love was doing this and I was able to go into it. Fantastic. Where can listeners find you online social media websites how do they book a trip or inquire about booking a trip with you well if you head to our website it's www.ganglers.com g-a-n-g-l-e-r-s.com just think g anglers uh ganglers.com and and if you go there you can start checking out what we have and then uh you know, if you want to reach out to our, our office, Katie Joe, and Katie Joe will get back to you. You know, if you want me to t get back to you, I can get back to you, no problem. You can also give us a call. But, you know, we're, we're not a, you know, it's a, this is a people, it's all about people. So, you know, we'd love to talk fishing and love to talk about what we have up there. It's very special. Fantastic. All right, well, Ken, thanks for taking some time out this afternoon and I'm glad we got to learn about you and your fishery up there. And hopefully one day I can do a live episode. Sounds good. Yeah, man. All right. Thanks again. Thanks a lot. All right. Thank you for joining us for the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. 
For more information or to contact Rob, please go to www.robsnowwhite.com. is brought to you by Freestone Productions at freestoneproductions.com. A life that has the stories to back it. A life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. 6-8 Western. Oh, I'll be over there, baby. Right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. Brave anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV.